Good morning. You guys doing well? I got to uh, experience God yesterday. I was speaking here, but I experienced Him through the Cardinals. Um, I told the evening service, uh, one rule, don't tell me anything about the Cardinal game because I have it DVR'd at home. I haven't seen a single pitch. I want to go home. I'm just going to watch that. And my stepdad, who I'm staying with, uh, staying with my family, he was gracious and kind enough to say, I'm going to wait and watch it with you. And so I get home, and he's out on the deck, walking around nervous with the cat. He's holding his cat. He looked like CeeLo. He's like, I couldn't be in the house. I knew I'd cheat. I knew I'd look and see what the score was. So this is so sweet of him. So we sit down to watch the game, and uh, the DVR didn't work. And so we got to see 11 pitches. It was a winner, but 11 pitches. And I experienced God because I wasn't even mad. I was just like, eh, it's all right. More family time. And I was like, who is this talking? Like, such a change for me. So there was growth that happened. Um, my name's Matt. I used to work here. I was here for three years, lived in the area for three and a half, and recently I moved to another ministry opportunity. I'm speaking here today because the staff uh, was tied up all week uh, shooting their scenes for the movie Gone Girl. So hopefully you'll see that in a few months. No, they actually had their staff retreat, which is a great blessing for them. I know from experience getting to, to do that, um, how important it is to retreat. And what they do during that time is that they pray for you and plan things, and just recharge and re-energize. And it's because of the graciousness of the congregation they can do that. So I know they're grateful. And it means I get to come and speak. And it's funny because I, in moving, I've been trying to you know, keep tabs on what's going on here because this is home. This is where my heart is in a lot of ways. And so how's the Nehemiah Project going? How's the church going? How's the family going? And that's what I get back is movie updates. And I get, well, we saw Ben Affleck do this, and we saw. And the worst one was the other day I got uh, a picture. I sent someone, I said, how are things going? And I got sent back a text message with Ben Affleck on an elliptical machine at a local gym. It's like, seriously, that's how your life's going? You send me Ben Affleck on an elliptical? Um, and it made me mad, too, because I lived here for three and a half years, and he exercised in two weeks more times than I did in my three and a half years. But maybe that's why he's a pro. He's a celebrity. I actually invited him here today. I don't know if he's, I haven't seen him yet. I sent him like three or 400 tweets. Um, he may not be here, but we're here. We're here, and I don't mean we're here in the building. I don't mean we're here in Cape or in that regard, but we're here on earth. We're here. And that in itself, when you think about it, is a curious fact that we're here, and we're going to walk this mortal coil. Someday all of us are going to die here on this earth. We're going to be buried into the earth. Like, this earth is our place. It's our home. It's what we're part of. We don't have a choice. Gravity binds us to it. We are here. And... It's just weird when you think of that. And it, it, the follow-up question to that is always, why? What's the point? Why are we here? What's the purpose of being here and our hereness? Like, what is this? And for me, I was thinking of what I, I, I could think of purpose and think of the point. And, and I thought of an image from college. I, was, I played on the college soccer team, and I was the captain of the team, and my senior year, we were really good, had a really strong team. We were supposed to make noise in the national tournament, all this stuff, um, but we had to win the conference championship first, so I remember that day, we got the hosted because our record was good, big game day, Saturday afternoon, I got there like two hours early. So like I said, I was a captain, I wanted to be the first one in the room, I wanted to talk to all the guys as they came in, encourage them, make sure everyone was feeling okay, all that. So I get up there thinking I'm first, and when I get into our, our changing room where all the jerseys are laid out for us, one jersey's gone, so I realize I'm not first. Jersey number two's gone, and that's David. That was our other captain, David from Spain. 
It's like, man, David beat me here. I got to find him. I got to see what's going on. I got to make sure he's not nervous. I was, but maybe I can fake it and trick him like I'm not. So I was looking everywhere for David. And I was on the, the upstairs of the athletic department. I look out the window to the soccer field, and there I see him. There's David. Hours before the game is this creepy moment where it, the only person on earth who knew where David was was me. And he didn't know anyone was watching him. And there I was looking over and watching him on the soccer field. And he's wearing his jersey, but on top of it, he was wearing his warm-up. And his cleats and his socks and his shin guards were discarded. They were over on the side of the field. He was just walking around the field barefoot, I guess trying to get his bearings, trying to get his mind right, trying to focus on the game, whatever it was. But the thing about David is he was cosmically wired to play soccer. Like, great player. Could have played professionally for anyone. Like, so good, so quick. He was from Spain, so he grew up playing it. Like, it was in his blood to play soccer. And here I'm looking at him and, and thinking about soccer. And when you take away the ball and you take away the other players and you take away the ref, all soccer really is is just kind of walking around. And that's what he was doing. He was just sort of walking around. And in that moment, he seemed aimless and empty, and it was even kind of sad. And I think that's the story of so many of our lives. We're cosmically engineered to do something, to have a point, to have a purpose, and yet we're just sort of walking around. Like I mentioned the new ministry opportunity I have. I'm a chaplain. It was a startup company, and it started up with just a few people. Now there's thousands of employees. And it's like a billion-dollar company, and with that, they have freedom to do some cool things. So they, they pay their people well, and they, they give them free food and free beverages all the time, and they give them gifts, and they have all these perks and perks and perks. And what I realized about two days in is that people don't need perks. They need purpose. Because these people who seem like they have everything, these people who are affluent, these people who have all these things going would come and sit in my office weeping because their life doesn't have a point. And I've only been there two months, and I've seen this time and time again. We all need a purpose, and God in making us knew that. He knew that we needed a purpose. He knew that we needed a point, and perhaps this is why one of Jesus' last utterances on earth, you guys looked at it weeks and weeks past, is Matthew 28, 18 through 20 and 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples. That's God looking at us saying, I made you for a purpose. You want to know what it is. You've been wondering what it is. You've been walking around empty. You've been walking around in that field, barefooted, feeling it out. Here's what it is. Make disciples. He could have paraphrased the whole thing and just said, have purpose. You want a life of purpose? Here you go. Here is a purpose that will not fade during your lifetime. Here's your purpose. You could have paraphrased it to don't be antelope. Because what do antelope do? They run around. They eat. Try not to get eaten. The whole purpose and point of an antelope's life is not to get eaten, not to die. And then at some point they do die, and that's their whole legacy. All they exist for is to survive, and some of us, that's all we exist for is to survive. It's to, to go do our jobs or to have our families, whatever. but it's really just surviving. It's not thriving because the point's not there. And I'm not saying there's not subplots to our life. Going to work and making money is a subplot. Having a family is a subplot. Having kids is a subplot, and they're good subplots, but it's not the main plot. And unless you get the main plot, you're not going to have the point that you're supposed to have. And that's what they're saying here is make disciples. And that's the way it works through the Bible. You see this. When God in the Old Testament wanted a nation, what did he do? He called a man. And through multiplication, he grew a nation. In the New Testament, in the same way, he called followers one by one. Come, be with me. Make disciples. And then when we see a lot of people at it at once, like in Acts where Peter preaches a message and thousands were added, we get follow-up verses that says they had everything in common. 
They had all things in common, which says they were eating together, doing life together. Discipleship was going on. Iron was sharpening iron. Discipleship was going on. So we say all that, but here's what I've noticed in my life, and I might just be preaching to me, and even if I am just preaching to me, there's going to be a good point to this because at least I'll grow. But we don't do it. We, we put the ladders on the stage. We put the banners out. We have the cool make logo, but we don't make disciples. Jesus said, make disciples. We say, yep, it matters. I think if we had a poll right now, we passed around. Some of you wouldn't fill it out because you're the type of people who wouldn't fill something out that someone handed them. I'm that type of person. We spot our own. But if you fill it out and the question number one was, is making disciples important? I think most of us would put yes. Like if we read the results out loud, we'd be like, oh, 90 percentile, yes. If we said, is it in the Bible? I think again, we'd hit yes. And if you listen to this whole uh, 15-week sermon series, by the end of it, you're going to say, wow, it is in there a lot. Yes. So it's important. It's in there. Does it take special education? Do you have to go to seminary to do it? No. Do you have to have some kind of special skill set to do it? No. Is just a few of us called to it? No. But we don't do it. I don't. If this is our overarching purpose in life, if this is the thing we're called to do, if this is the most important task we have on this earth where we are stuck living, shouldn't that be our mindset when we get out of bed every day? Like some of us yawn and it's like, oh, I don't want to get out of bed. That's usually how I am. Or I have to go to work today. Here's my to-do list. Those are our first thoughts. Our first thought ought to be, today is a day I make disciples. Today is a day that I see people enter the kingdom of God or I help people in the kingdom of God grow closer to Christ. That's why I'm here. That's why I got up today. I rejoiced in the Lord because he got me up and now he's given me something to do all day. And when I go to bed, that should be my last thought. Tomorrow I get to make disciples. It's not on my mind when I wake up. And I contend the reason it's not on my mind is because of a simple phrase I misunderstand. That's the phrase I want to look at today, and it's, it's a phrase we've all heard. It's a phrase we've all said. I remember the first time I said it with authority and with meaning. I was with my, my younger sister, and I was probably eight. She was probably four. I've alluded to this story before, but we had a lot of land, and we wandered down, and we found this pond. I remember we found this pond, and we thought, wow. It's kind of like that David moment. We thought this pond existed solely for us. We thought no one else on earth knew about this pond but us, and it was this magical Narnia moment in our childhood. We found this pond, and we just played at it all day. Just me and her, no one knew where we were. We were just playing at this pond. I remember we had these long sticks, and we were uh, getting the lily pads, and we were scooping them over to us because we thought lily pads only existed in coloring books until we found this pond, and now we have lily pads, and we're holding them like floppy pancakes in our hands. I just remember it was this great day until the sun started going down. We didn't realize it until it started happening. It started getting dark, and we were kids. We were, we were frightened. And then we heard dogs start barking. And it sounded like they were all around us, these dogs, at this pond, and it was getting dark, and we started just freaking out. I remember we were running around, and she was crying, and I was crying, and thorns were, like, you know, biting our ankles, and we were bleeding, and we were running into trees and everything else. We were just panicking because it was getting dark. We were alone. We were scared. We were cold, and we heard dogs. And then I remember I had this moment of clarity. Maybe it was a moment of prayer. I don't know what it was. But I started thinking, our house is uphill from here. The sun's over there. The sun used to be. I started doing all these things in my head, realizing where we had come from and how to get back home. And I remember saying this. And it's the same thing that God says to his followers in the Old Testament. The same thing Jesus says to his followers in the New Testament. And it's the same thing we are to say to people who we are making disciples of. Follow me. I took her hand and we ran home. Follow me is the phrase. And it's how the gospel is posed to every heart. 
initially, the gospel is supposed to every heart, whether you do it hearing a VBS message or a sermon or you, know, you listen to a podcast or someone sits down and walks the Roman road with you, whatever it is, there's that internal follow me that Jesus says to every heart. And it's a choice you get to make, follow me. And discipleship's the same way. It's a daily follow me choice that you have. And God lines up the teams. I remember growing up, if you were the last pick and the numbers were even, there's one kid standing there, what would happen to that kid? You'd say, pick which team you want. And the kid would get to look at both teams and decide which one he was going on. And on, in the cosmic scale, we have that before us. We have both teams made up, and God says, follow me. You can choose which team. You can be on my team or the other team. My team's got hope, joy, peace, fulfillment. This team's got bitterness and hollowness and emptiness and fear, and you get to pick which team. And for me, in my life, so often I go to this side. Over and over again, I go to this side. I go to this side. Discipleship is on this side. If I want to experience those things and be part of that team, I get on with discipleship. And I'm filled by those things. But again, so often I don't. And so what I want to do today is make sure we understand fundamentally the phrase, follow me. Because if we're missing that phrase, it's not just that we're missing a phrase in the Bible that's in a lot of verses. What we're missing is our purpose, is our point. We're just antelope walking around in human costumes. Like we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're not living how we're supposed to be living. And that's the danger. So I want to begin with the me. The me of follow me. And I think we can all admit that that's pretty important. Anytime you're following anyone, anywhere, the me is important. Just like that story in the woods, if I had been a stranger reaching out to my sister saying, follow me, I'm hoping she wouldn't have gone. Some creepy guy in a mask, I'm hoping she wouldn't have gone. I remember growing up, I had two older sisters who would get dates. And if you're a parent and you have teenage girls, I see a few of you who do, they'd come home and, you know this announcement, I'm going to the prom. As a parent, what do you say? With whom? Who are you going to the prom with? Like, that's pretty key. You don't just say, oh, great, I hope you have a good time. Tell whoever it is I said hi. No, you say, who are you going with? Because that's a big deal who you're going with. And they say, oh, I'm going with Billy down the road. You might say, okay. But they look at you and say, it's a new guy at school. His name's Slayer. You're going to be like, you're not going to Slayer until Slayer comes over and meets us. And we want to meet Slayer's parents, and we want his digits. We want his email. We want to know the Slayer guy before you walk out the door, get in his car, all that stuff. With whom you're going is hugely important. And anything. And so we have to consider daily, if we're going to make disciples, who are we following? We hear follow me, and if we don't know who we're following, that's a big deal. That's trouble. We have to look at who we're following. And to do that, I want to look at Exodus 3 and 4. Because in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses gets heavy-handed fed to him who the me of follow me is. Like, he just gets nailed over the head with it repeatedly. And I think that's how we need to be. We need to daily come back to this and consider what Moses heard. In Exodus 3, if you're new uh, to the Bible, you're not exactly sure where it is, it's early, it's the second book on my Bible, it's page 81, so you might start there, or ask a neighbor, we're not proud. Exodus 3, verse 1, now Moses was pastoring a flock, so we get his job description first of all, he's a shepherd, he's walking around, we get who his father-in-law is, Jethro, who's a priest, Um, and he's just wandering around. Verse 2, angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. So imagine, if you will, the, the ladder on this side of the stage just erupts in the flame, and we're watching it, and it's just this huge engulfing inferno, yet the, no ashes are formed. It's just burning and burning and burning, but not burning up. That would be kind of an interesting moment. And that's what happens to Moses. It's an interesting moment. He says in verse 3, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Like, I don't think that's really what he said. That's what he wrote in his journal, and that's what became scripture. But that sounds so British to me. 
Like, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. And I think he said, whoa, a bush. Look, it's on fire. i got to go see it. So he runs over. He sees this bush. He gets close to it. And the Lord saw that he turned aside and looked. God called to him and says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So there's our first introduction to God, or the first one for Moses. It's, I'm holy. It knocks his socks off. That's where we get that phrase, probably. Now, Moses had to kick his shoes off because God's holiness, his perfection, his mightiness fills the area that he is. And that's why in the New Testament we need a mediator so that we can get in the presence of God because God is too holy for us. He's too different than us. He's otherworldly than us. And Moses is there walking. He can't even get close without kicking his shoes off. This is a big thing. This is a big moment with a big God. And so God says also in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And that's where Moses understood who he was talking to. For Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. So God comes and hits him with his resume. Like, you want to know who I am? Here I am. All these people you've heard about, all the people you've heard about in Sunday school, and remember, Moses' father-in-law is a priest, so he's heard these stories, he's had it preached to him, he knew who these guys were. These were big-time guys to his people. These were the guys who they looked to. These were their leaders. These were what they came from. These were his um, ancestors. And God says, I'm their God. I'm that God. That one you've heard about? Yeah, that's me. And that's big time for Moses. Moses is like, oh man, things just got serious. And then 7 through 9, God tells him, I know what's going on with the Egyptians and the Israelites. I know the Israelites have been taken captive. I know that they're slaves. I want to free them. And then we get the verse 10 and it says, therefore, come now. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring the people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I think what he says there is the answer that we so often have to God. Called to discipleship, called to missions, called to evangelism. Anytime we're called to anything tough for God, what do we say? Who am I? So we have this phrase, follow me. And before the follow me, there's always another phrase. So it's Ryan, follow me, or Larry, follow me, or Cliff, follow me, or Matt, follow me. In this case, it's Moses, follow me. And instead of focusing on the me, we focus on the beginning. We focus on the Moses or the Matt. So I think, who am I? And that's what Moses said. He said, I see God, I hear who you are, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on me and my shortcomings. And in response to my shortcomings, what does Moses say? He says, I can't do that. Just like we say about discipleship, I can't do that. Evangelism, I can't do that. Missions, I can't do that. I think every time we ever say that, you know what happens in heaven? You know what God says back to us? What Jesus says? I think he says this, bravo. You got that one right. Good for you. Okay, we don't have to worry about that. Yeah, I know you can't do that. Like when you hear about discipleship and think, I can't do that, I'm not going to do that, I think God's like, all right, step one, covered. They got the truth there. They can't do that. And that's why he follows up with the next verse. And it says this in verse 12, certainly I will be with you. Yeah, I know you can't do that, Moses. You're a stuttering murderer. I know you can't do that. Look at you, you're a shepherd. You don't even have shoes on. I know you can't do that. I'll be with you though. Yeah, I'm going to be there. That's why I'm coming. Man, if I thought you could go alone, I'd love for you to go, but I'm going to come with you because I know you can't. And then you link that. What happens in Matthew 28? I love how the Old Testament is so often linked so closely to the New Testament. What does Jesus say? Go, therefore, and make disciples. How does he close it? Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The disciples are like, we can't do that. And he, I'll be with you. I know you can't. That's why I'm coming too. We're going to team up on this thing. I'm going to pull most away, but we're going to team up on it. And then Moses says this, an important verse. Moses says to God, 
Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What am I supposed to say to them? See, in Hebrew culture, a name meant everything. It meant everything. Like when we are having a kid, like you're having a baby, what do you do? You get your baby book, you say, that sounds cool. No one else in this preschool will have that name. I'm going to try that. Like recently I've met a couple 1T mats, M-A-T. makes me so mad because they just wanted to be different. Why, why would you be a 1T mat? Matt is made to have two T's. I'm going to have a kid and I'm going to name him after his dad. He's going to be Matt and I'm going to make three T's just to make the 1T mats feel funny. Like I'm Matt with three T's. But our names don't matter. We have celebrities naming their kid Apple, and we have celebrities naming their kid North. Like, names are just names to us. Whatever. Just throw a name on a kid. It's no big deal. In their culture, it meant everything. That's why when God calls Abram, he changes his name to Abraham. He changes Sarah's name, the spelling on it. He changes names all the time. He changes Saul to Paul. He changes Peter's name. He changes these names because their name means your characteristic, who you are, what your destiny is, what you're meant to do. Names are huge. And so Moses is asking a valid question like, hey, I know your last name is Mr. God or Mr. Lord or whatever, but what's your first name? Who are you? What's your characteristics? How do I know this is going to be seen through to the end? How how will they trust me without a name? I need to know your name. I got your resume, but what's your name? And what's crazy here that we don't think about is that God answers him. God shouldn't be in that bush talking to a human. God shouldn't have written us a Bible. You know how imperfect language is? If you study language at all, you realize there's not words in certain languages and other languages, and there's weird things, and you try and teach someone English, and none of it makes sense when you really start getting into it. Like, language is imperfect, and God condescended language to write us a Bible. Here, God condescends earth to come into a bush and talk to a human being who doesn't understand anything. And there, this human being who is nothing to God, like who is so small, so finite, just this ant of a thing, and God is willing to condescend once again and say, I'll answer you. I'll even tell you my name. Just like he's willing to condescend and enter a human body in in the form of Jesus. God is so willing to meet us where we are, and here he meets Moses here. Moses asks maybe silly questions, but he's asking these questions, and God's like, you know what, I'm going to answer him. I see exactly what he needs. I'm going to fill that need. I'm going to answer him. So he says, what's your name? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then God continues, gives an even better answer. He says, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. I love this part. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So he's not just saying, this is my name to Moses. He's saying, this is my name forever. Do we fit into forever? Like, he is speaking directly to us. We know God's name. He says, Moses, here's my name, and while I have you here, I'm going to tell every other human on earth my name. This is my name. And that name translated as Yahweh. The Hebrews wouldn't even say it. They wouldn't even say it. They wouldn't even spell it. And our Bibles is not there because they wouldn't write it. They just leave blanks or they do, like, abbreviations. They, they didn't want to utter it. And what it means is, I am. When God speaks of himself, he says, I am. And when we speak of God, we say, he is. So Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am. He is. And why that is huge is because God is answering every question that Moses has and every question that every other human is ever going to have about God by saying, I am. That's huge for us when we think of discipleship or we think about anything. So when we're met with a challenge, when we're met with a circumstance, when we're met with a trial, when the world is storming around us, when when tasks are raging around us, when we don't want to do things, he's the answer. 
When we say I'm not smart, He is. When we say I'm not rich, He is. I'm not ready, He is. I'm not sure, He is. I'm not brave, He is. I'm not powerful, He is. I'm not equipped, He is. I'm not holy, He is. Everything we can come up with, He says, I am. We say He is. He, he's got it covered. He has it all covered. We think oftentimes in our life, sin is the answer to our fulfillment. We think if we do this thing, it's going to give us joy. If we make this amount of money, it's going to fill us up, whatever. We think these sins are the answer, and He says, no, that's not the answer. I am the answer. He is the answer to our fulfillment. He is the answer to our purpose. We walk around, we say, we want purpose. We want a point in our life. And he's like, I am. He is the point. He is the purpose. And then he says, to all generations forever. So he always has been. He says, Abraham and Isaac. So in the past, I always have been the answer. And then he says, to all generations, I always will be the answer. So he says, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. This is the God of Moses. It's the God of of Paul. It's the God of St. Augustine. It's the God of John Calvin. It's the God of Martin Luther. It's the God of our founding fathers. It's the God of of C.S. Lewis. It's the God of Hal Green. It's the God of your grandmother. It's the God of your parents. It's the God of you. And it's going to be the God of your children. And that's never going to change. He is forever. Present tense, always. He is. No matter what tense you're in, whatever, what age you're in, he is the answer to every question. So when we say, I can't do discipleship, I can't do evangelism, I can't do the task that's laid before me, I can't get up out of bed, he says, I am the answer. Whatever our issue is, he is. And I love that he is because he is, I don't have to be. Because God is, I don't have to be. All I have to do is be his. Like Moses is like, I don't speak well. And God's like, you don't have to speak well. I am language. I am words. I am thought. I am power. Like, why are you worried about your speaking ability? To every objection we have, he is the answer in every nuance of life. I like the example uh, of playing a two-on-two basketball tournament. We play a citywide two-on-two basketball tournament. If I recruit any one of you to be on my team, doesn't matter of your game, we're going to lose because of my game. I don't shoot well. I can't go left. We're going to lose. But if I enter that two-on-two basketball tournament and I got LeBron James as my partner and we go into that tournament, we are fine. Like we're going to win. Not because I am, but because he is. Because of his dunking ability, jumping ability, shooting ability. And whatever he tells me to do, I'm just going to do it because he is carrying us. He has us on his back. We're good. And so when discipleship comes up and we say things or evangelism comes up, we say things like, what if someone gets mad at me? What if I don't know the answer to the question? What if I don't know what to do? What if I lose a friend? I think God just answers us and says, did you not listen? I'm God. I'm with you. I'm God. Why are we still talking? Let's do this. Let's plug into my story. Let's get your life with purpose. Let's, let's walk. Let's do this. And he says it to Moses here, but it echoes into the New Testament and then on into today, and it's the answer for our fear, our doubt, our apathy, our fatigue, our divorce, our guilt, our shame. To all that, he just says, I am, he is, I overcome. He is able to overcome your fear, your doubt, whatever's holding you back. He's, he is able. Just take that and just forget it. If it's sin, he says he'll take it. He'll throw it into the depths of the sea. He chooses to forget that. Moses keeps on questioning. He gets that answer. He keeps on questioning. And when I looked at this passage early in the week, I was looking at it and looking at all the questions, and I was going to have a Moses roast. I was just going to rip on him. Like, Moses, you're this. Moses is this. Look at him. What's wrong with him? How can we be this way? And I started thinking about, you know what? Moses is right. He's going on 
mission impossible here. He's going against the most powerful nation on earth, one man. Like, he should get his answers questioned. Like, he doesn't deserve to have, he doesn't deserve the answers, but he should ask the questions. I think many of us don't ask the questions because we're scared. Like, if I have a little bit of doubt, I'll walk away from this whole thing. Or we, we coddle our kids this way. And our kids end up doing exactly what the parents say or whatever the youth pastor says. And if they have questions, we're like, don't think that way or you shouldn't say that. And what I see here is Moses asking, asking these deep, hard questions. And you know what? God's got the answer to every one of them. Like, if you haven't wrestled with the me of follow me, if you haven't really looked into who the me is, you're not going to follow when things get hard. When the trial hits, you're not going to keep walking because you don't trust the me. See, you have to understand who the me is, and that's what Moses is getting at here. This is why so many of our teens grow up in the church, and then as soon as trials hit, as soon as life hits, as soon as college hits, as soon as other ideas hit, what happens? They walk the other way because they've never seen who the me is. Because we were scared. If they, if they ask that question, they're not going to believe. God's not scared of doubt. He is the answer to our doubts. That's why I love the story of Thomas. Disciples are all excited. Jesus rose from the dead. And Thomas said, no, people who are dead stay dead. I don't believe it. I would need Jesus to show up, take my hands, and stick it in his side for me to believe that. And what happens? Jesus meets him. What does he do? He does exactly the doubt that Thomas needs answer. He answers it. Takes his hand, sticks it in his side, puts it in the holes in his hands. Says, what else you got? What else you need answered? I'm not talking about silly, stupid doubt where if God gives me a million dollars, I'll believe in him. No, that's just pride. That's just ridiculous. I'm talking about honest doubt. Jesus meets it. Honest doubt, he'll show up and he'll show it. He'll answer it because he is. So Moses keeps asking, he keeps asking, he keeps asking. I love, too, that that God gives him his first name. He gives him his special name, and Moses keeps using the unspecial name, like the lowercase lord, the same thing a a cupbearer would say to a king or a servant would say to a master. He doesn't give him the cool name that I am, he is, this, this personal name, this relationship name. He doesn't use that. He uses, like, the formal name. But I think even though he's doing that, Moses knows at this point. Don't you? I mean, he's, he's looking at a bush that's burning. He, he took his shoes off. He hears all this. He's hiding his face. He gets who the me is. Like we talk about the follow me, he's understanding here the me. But the point I want to make here, even though Moses is understanding the me, he's not doing the follow. See, knowledge does not equal obedience. I think it's important to say that to a solid church, to where we preach the Bible, and we go verse by verse, and we have an apologetics class that's forming, and we have perspectives that we watch the video on, and we have all kinds of educational opportunities. And if we were to get a quiz team together from Cape Bible Chapel and do a Missouri State Bible quiz, we'd probably fare really well. We'd be on the podium, right? But if we get all the me down and we don't do the follow, what good is that? I mean, knowledge doesn't equal obedience. I don't want to say this. You should do the apologetics course. You should dig dig deep. You should look into Hebrew and Greek. You should know. Oftentimes in Christendom, what we do is we make things an either-or, and it shouldn't be an either-or. It's a both-and. You need the follow, and you need the me to walk well with Christ. Learn and do. It's both. That's why the mission statement of this church is what it is. To know him and to make him known. It's two-sided. We need to know him. We need to know the me. We need to know the me. We need to learn about the me, but we also need to do the follow. Got to get both. I love the C.S. Lewis quote. I'm going to paraphrase it. Because in, in 4.13, it's the fifth objection Moses has. He says, 
Send someone else. Send whomever you will, but don't send me. Send someone else. And the C.S. Lewis quote says that God's will is going to be done no matter what. He's God. He wins. We pick the teams. His team's going to win the kickball game. The cosmic kickball game, they're going to win. They're going to win. God's will is going to be done, but it makes all the difference in the world to you, whether you serve like Judas or like John. His will is going to get done. The choice we have is if we want to be on the winning team. Well, you can choose Judas or John. You can have a life of, of comfort and joy and not comfort in that you have stuff, comfort in that no matter what stuff hits the fan, you're okay because you know him. A life where you just have abounding joy. You know, whatever's going on in your life, you consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. You can have that life or you can have the one where you're walking around that soccer field barefooted, looking for fulfillment, feeling empty, living paycheck to paycheck, living job to job, trying to get that fancy car. You get it, it's good for about a month and then you're looking for something else. Trying to, to, to get on with your wife and you end up having a kid and this is great, we're parents and then that wears off and it's like that didn't fulfill me like I thought it would. Now what do we do? I've already gotten married, I already have the job, I already have the kids, now what's there? I mean, those are good things, but it's not the main thing. See, discipleship is the main thing. And in that, those other things begin to have more value and to add to the fulfillment that you already have. But they don't replace the fulfillment you need through discipleship. Trust in the mission cannot start with you. It has to begin with he is. So when he says, you follow me, it's got to start with the me of that sentence. It can't start with the you. Got to start with the me. The reason you don't do discipleship for a lot of us, for me, so I start with the you. I don't start with the he is, the I am. I start with the what I am not. Can't be that way. Moses gets the me, doesn't do the follow. If you look in Matthew 4.19, we'll go quick here, but that's where we see the follow. Jesus looks out into a boat and he says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And what does Peter do? He's like, ah, the fish aren't biting anyway. He drops his net and he follows and he goes along with him. And then Jesus says, we're going to heal people. We're going to do this ministry. We're going to do that ministry. Peter's like, we're healing people? This is great. All right, I'm down. And, and Jesus says, the, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Peter looks at it and he's like, that's a camping trip. Let's do it. They go town to town and Peter's right there, always following, always following. He, got, he has the follow part down. Jesus gets out and starts walking on water. What does Peter do? He jumps over the side of the boat. He's like, I'm going to walk on water too. I'm following, I'm following, I'm following. Fishes and loaves are multiplying everywhere. We're going to feed the people. I'll pass them out. I'll be the waiter. This is cool. I'm going to follow everything you do. But then in between these, these things, in between these miracles, in between these signs, what are the disciples, Peter included, what do they say? We'll believe what you say if we could just see the Father. Can we just get a peek of the Father? Can we just see what he looks like? Then we'll believe all this stuff. Give us a sign. I love when they ask for a sign. The disciples or different followers ask for a sign after Jesus raises Lazarus. Guy's dead in the tomb, four days. He comes walking out. They're reclining at a table, eating with Lazarus. He's right there in the room, and people are like, can we just get a sign? And Lazarus has to be like, I'm right here. Remember that time I was dead? They're like, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Who's the greatest among us? Who do you love the most? And in all these questions, what we see is they get the follow, but they don't get the me. They don't understand who the me is. Like at one point, Jesus says in John 8, 58, the, the Religious leaders are asking him, who are you? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's tying that back to Exodus, this I am. It's the same guy, and he's saying, I am that guy. 
before time. I, I, I am the He is. I am the great I am. I'm that person. They pick up stones because that's blasphemy. You can't do that. But He's saying who He is and the disciples just don't get it until Matthew 16. It took 16 chapters. And Jesus walks up to Peter and confronts him and says, who do you say that I am? And at that moment, Peter finally gets it. He gets to follow in the me intertwined and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And I see that too in my own heart. And I see that probably with some of us here. That we're all in on discipleship. Ladders on the stage, let's do it. This is great. We're all in on small groups. Let's do it, small groups. We're all in whatever the pastor says, whatever our parents say, whatever. We're all in on it. Let's heal people. Let's do it. But if Jesus showed up and said, who do you say that I am? You would say, hint. Can I get a clue? I mean, we're all about activity. This following thing's cool because it numbs us to our need for fulfillment. Like it's a distraction. Instead of the main attraction, it is a distraction so that we don't have to deal with that upward tug. Who do you say that I am? I had a good experience with this uh, about a week ago. Maybe it was two weeks ago. But I was discipling a guy. There's this guy, I'm kind of discipling him. His whole life fell apart. Married 30 years, and his wife said, I don't want to be married anymore. Blindside. Finds out some other situations that are going on. Just brutal. And he chooses me. And I was like, I'm going to get to disciple this guy. He's in the faith, and I'm going to get to point him to Christ through this trial. And we're sharing scripture back and forth, and I get to pray with him. And I was like, this is cool. I mean, the situation's not, but that I'm here for him is, and that we're doing discipleship. He comes to me, and then I walk with him. But what I realized in our walk one day is that I wasn't walking after Christ at all. Yeah, I was disciple-making, but I was making a disciple of Matt, not a disciple of the Son of Man. The reason I realized that is because he's having these issues with his wife, and he invited me to a thing. He said, are you going to come tonight? I really want you to come because my wife's going to be there. So you can meet her, and maybe she'll come to trust you, and we can all you know, get together and talk about things. And So are you going to come? I was like, absolutely, I'm going to come, and I will bring Scripture in my back pocket, all my Bible there, and we will pray, and it will be amazing. You guys will renew your vows. We are going to disciple our way to the top. I got the answers. What I didn't tell him is that I hadn't spoken to my own wife in a day. We had gone to bed angry. I'd been a jerk. We weren't getting along. I had pride. I had anger. We hadn't talked. We had texted like once that day. I mean, we were in a good fight, one of those good marital fights. But to him, I was like, yeah, I'm going to stand in the gap for you. I got this. And in my heart, I was ruled by pride, by arrogance. What does Jesus say about don't go to the altar? When you have strife with your brother, go away and, and solve that and then. I was standing on the altar, like, come to me. I'll do this. And so I, I told the guy, and this was crazy. I told him, I can't be there. I text him. I said, hey, I can't make that thing tonight. I'm sorry. I got a personal issue. A couple days later, I saw him, and we met. And he said, what was that all about? How can you not be there for me? I thought you were my guy. Like, ah, oh, I wish you would have been there. And I said, I want to be honest with you. I'll confess to you. I was fighting with my own wife. I'm here trying to help you with your wife. And here I was having this big fight with my own wife. And I was like, I felt convicted. I, I needed to fix that. He said, you, you screw up? And I said, here's my wife's number. You call her. She'll tell you. And it was the most real discipleship we had in our two, three weeks of walking together. It wasn't the scripture I was sending him. It wasn't the Bible I had given him. It wasn't the verses we were reading together. It wasn't the prayers that we had. It was that moment of vulnerability where I got to say to him, I have to follow him daily as well. It's a battle. It's a fight. But I'm going to chase hard after him. And then if you chase hard after me, you know you're chasing hard after him because that's what I'm about. 
See, for a while there, I was just letting him chase me, and I was going the opposite direction of Christ. And that's not discipleship, or at least not the kind we're after. See, we have to get the follow and the me. And to know if you have the follow right, are you following what God taught? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Are you doing those things? Matthew 5 through 7, read that. Are you living that way? Are you loving people well? Are you treating others how you want to be treated? Are you laying down your life for people? Are you standing in the gap for them? Are you not judging people? That's how you know if you're actually following the me. Because some of us can get the follow down, but we don't get the me down. We need both. So if we get the follow, the right follow, we've got a purpose-driven, action-fueled, cross-bearing, disciple-making life. That's fulfillment. And then we have to make sure the me's there. And that's the, the great I am. That's Jesus Christ. That's the suffering service. He's full of gracious mercy and love. And then I love in, in the Exodus passage, 4.2 says, The Lord said to Moses, after saying, I am the great I am. I'm the answer to every problem. Always have been. Always will be. I am all powerful. I've been all powerful to your fathers, your grandfathers. I will be all powerful to your sons and your grandsons. I'm, I'm this powerful, mighty God. This bush is on fire. The blaze is hitting Moses. He says this in 4.2. He says, what's in your hand? And at that moment, Moses had to be like, I just heard you give me your whole resume. You sound like a pretty powerful God, yet you do not know what I'm holding. What kind of power is that? And what you realize in that, in context, is that God knows exactly what is in Moses' hand. He's asking that question for Moses' sake, but he's asking it for our sake as well. Because he's looking at us today and he's saying, what is in your hand? You say I can't be a disciple. He's saying, what's in your hand? What gifts have I already given you? What talents have I given you? What location have I put you in? What job? Maybe it's a dead-end job, but I put you there because it's a disciple-making platform for you. In the Old Testament, he uses Moses. And he likens it to a shepherd. He, he pulls a shepherd to take a flock through the wilderness to the promised land. In the New Testament, what does he do? He sees some guys in a boat and he, he ties it to being a fisherman. Things they understand, things they have in their hand. One had a, a net in his hand, the other one had a staff in his hand. God uses what he's already given us to make disciples. All of us can make disciples. He's given us gifts, he's given us abilities, he's given us time and space, he's given us a place on this earth for disciple making. And what happens is when Moses actually got the follow part, when he goes, the greatest deliverance on earth happened. Freedom happened. When Moses got the follow. When Peter gets the me part, understands who he's following, and he makes that confession in Matthew 16, you know what Jesus looks at him and says? On your confession, I'm going to build my church. Through you and the other apostles and knowing now who I am, I'm going to build the thing that is like my tangible expression after I go to heaven. It's going to be the thing that wins people to my Father. It's going to be the thing, the mover and shaker in this world, the most powerful entity. It's going to be the church that's going to live from now until when Christ returns. I'm going to do that through you. When we follow the great I am, we do the exact mission we are cosmically, fearfully, and wonderfully made to do. The exact thing we are fitted for. And we'll see change and justice and growth and legacy and life left behind us. So I began with the Cardinals. I'm going to end with the Cardinals. I don't know if any of you saw Friday night's game. Awesome game. You guys who hate baseball, I, I know you hate this time of year because everyone talks about the Cardinals. You just have to grin and bear it and fake it. But really, you're like, I hate them. But I love them, so I'm going to talk about them a little bit more. Great game. One guy named Carlos Beltran. He plays right field for the Cardinals. When it hits October, he turns into like a baseball robot. He's like 
efficiency, gets the job done every time. He's a great player anyway, but on Friday night's game, he throws a guy out at the plate to save the game. And then he's in several pressure pack situations. He gets big hits. We win three to two. He had all three RBI. He's an amazing October baseball player, better than Babe Ruth, better than all these like famous baseball names. And the people are going nuts. The commentators can't believe this. All the, the, the stat heads are like, how does he do what he does? And the thing about Carlos Beltran is he makes it look easy. Like, he looks so smooth. And so after the game, they get him for an interview, and they say, Carlos, tell us. You're in these pressure-packed situations, situations that, that crumple stronger, greater men than you, and yet you stand there and you get the job done. How do you get this done in the postseason? How do you do what you do? And his answer was great. He said, kind of shrugged, God made me for this. He said, I believe God made me to take these at-bats. Now, does that mean Carlos Beltran doesn't hit in the cage? He hits in the cage all the time. Does that mean he doesn't watch video? Apparently, he watches more video than anyone else on the Cardinals. Like, he works at his craft. He's constantly disciplined and getting better and growing in his profession. But he makes it look smooth because it was what he was made to do. He's put on the earth to play baseball, not to play baseball, but to play baseball so that he could have a disciple-making platform. And for all of us, we've been put on the earth. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. It's the reason we're put to earth. So do you want your life to look smooth? Like when the storms, I'm not saying comfortable and, and, and cozy and, and skipping through the fields, but I'm saying when the storms of life come, when, when people are passing away around you, when disease is, is hitting your household, when, when times are down, when finances are gone, when everything is just falling apart, you're just kind of shrug, and you got the wisdom, and you got the discernment, and you're just walking, and people say, how are they so smooth? Oh, it's what I was cosmically fitted to do, because I'm making disciples. And that's the picture, to live a smooth existence on this earth, like David walking around the soccer field. He didn't look natural, but man, put a ball at his feet, and oh, that's what David's made to do. That's there for all of us in Christ, through discipleship. And so we can go out of this room and keep doing what we do and wondering what's the meaning, what's the purpose. Or we can go have meaning and purpose because he's told us what it is. We can be smooth in our existence. Let me pray with you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are, and, and we thank you, Lord, for condescending and telling us who you are, and then beyond that, telling us what you want us to do, and then telling us that you're going to help us do it, and do it through us. As far as easy gigs go, we got the easiest gig of all, if we would just get out of our own way and let you work. And then like Moses, once he looked on who you were, and once he decided to go with what you said, mighty works happen, power happen change happen. Progress happen. And we see that time and time again through your word, and yet so often we're reluctant or we're apathetic or we're just tired, but Lord, you are the answer to all of that. You are the I am. You are the he is. And I pray that we would just trust in that promise that when sin or when strife or when apathy, whatever it is, just rears up in our life that we would say he is, he is, he is, and just preach that to ourselves, Lord. I pray that I would preach it to myself. And maybe I'm talking to myself here, Lord, and I may be, but I pray that for me, that you would change me and make me go, therefore. And lo, you will be with me always. I mean, that's, that's life right there, Lord. And I pray that we would live it. I pray that we would give life. I pray that we would just be conduits of life for those around us.
and that we would seize hold of our mission, our disciple-making mission on earth, and that we would grow and be vibrant in this world that you've given us to live in. I thank you for this time, and I pray blessings on this congregation, these people. And I pray that together we would share stories down the road of just wondrous disciple-making, and we would stand in awe of what you're going to do, Lord. We pray all this in your precious Son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen.